Today on Women of Impact, psychotherapist Dr. Laurie Gottlieb unveils the honest truth to what actually holds us back in life. The biggest thing is that you have to give up the hope of having had a better childhood. A New York Times bestselling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, she addresses head on why we can't escape our own emotional jail cells. Right. When we are in pain, we do something that is going to make us suffer instead of something that is going to help us sit with the pain and move through in, in a more healing kind of process. And shares shocking tips about embracing your envy. Follow your envy. It tells you what you want. It gives you a sense of your desire. It's like women have so much trouble acknowledging their desires. So guys, get ready for a mind-blowing dose of reality <gasps> with the no BS doctor and psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb. You literally just gave me the chills. Welcome to Women of Impact. Welcome, Laurie, to the show. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. Got so much to talk about. And where I think I want to start is really let's talk about the unreliable narr narrator, because that really kind of, I think, sets the stage for where we're going to go in the discussion. Sure. So, you know, my, my book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is the story of four of my therapy patients as I help them through their struggles. And there's a fifth patient, and the fifth patient is me as I go to my own therapist to deal with my own struggle. And one of the threads throughout the book is this idea of unreliable narrators, that when people come into therapy, they tell you the story of what is going on, and they are 100% certain that their version of the story is the accurate version of the story. Now, it's accurate in terms of their perspective, but it's not necessarily the full story. And I think that where people get stuck and why they sometimes feel like, you know, they don't know where, where to go or they, they feel like something is not working is because they're missing entire parts of the story. And it, it's almost like I feel like my job as a therapist is to be an editor and to help people mm. to edit these faulty narratives that they come in with. So um, break that down for me then. What are the things that um, if, if I'm listening to you right now, I'm like, okay, yep, I get it. Maybe my story is just one perspective. How do we start to um, change that? How do you, what's that first step look like? Well, I first think there's this misconception that I think people feel like they're coming to therapy to get to know themselves. And I feel like people are coming to therapy to get to unknow themselves. And by that, I mean to let go of those limiting stories that they're carrying around that are preventing them from really living their lives. And so people come in with stories like, I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone. Mm. Um, you know, nothing will ever work out for me, whatever their story is. And that's a story that they picked up long ago that they're still carrying around. And it impacts every choice, decision, behavior that happens during the day. Um, and, and so I think that that's really important is sort of unknowing yourself as part of really editing that narrative. Other times people have part of a story, like I see couples a lot in therapy and you hear one person in the couple telling one version of the story and another person in the couple telling another version of the story. And they were, it's the exact same incident, but they saw it from completely different perspectives. And I think where people can really grow and change and communicate better is to understand and be curious about the other person's per part of the story, the other person's perspective. 
So many times we make assumptions about Mm -hmm. why somebody acted a certain way or said something to us or did something and we're completely wrong. Yeah, God, that's so true. Um, And even with the knowing though, there is such a big gap between knowing something and then how you're feeling. Because I find myself, whenever I'm trying to make a change, whenever I have a problem, I know I've read the books. I've done, you know, the, the homework, if you will. I've spent years working on myself. But in those moments, the feeling overcomes it. The feeling takes over. So, um, and going to a quote where you were saying, um, I know that often people create faulty narratives to make themselves feel better in the moment, even though it makes them feel worse over time. But I also, and this is one thing you were saying about being in your own therapy session, but I also know that boyfriend is a goddamn motherfucking selfish sociopath. I'm in the space of not, of knowing and not knowing. I love, <laughs> I laughed out loud so much. And it's because you're a therapist that it carries so much weight. So how do you, knowing yourself, break those two down so that one doesn't influence the other? So there's this great, quote also from from the book and it's it's that I that I put in the book that somebody else said which is insight is the booby prize of therapy mm-hmm. and I love that because I think people think that they're coming to therapy to understand why they do what they do and so they get the insight but if they don't make changes the insight is useless right. and so I really feel that most of therapy takes place between sessions, meaning you come to therapy, you learn something about your role in what is not working out. And just because you have the insight doesn't mean anything's going to change. You then have to change your behavior. So for example, somebody might say to me, well, over the weekend, I got into this fight with my partner and I realized exactly why I, I, I understood it this time. And I'll say, well, did you do something different? And they'll look at me like, well, no, but I understood it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's step one. But now this next weekend, if you get into another disagreement, you're going to do something different, right? Mm -hmm. With that knowledge, you have to use the insight. Otherwise, you're just coming and talking about things every week, but you're not really moving forward. And I think that difference that you said about my being aware of that I had a role in this relationship not working out in, in the book um, and, and then also feeling like, you know, all of your friends are saying, oh, he's such a jerk. I can't believe he did that. And that's the difference between idiot compassion and mm. wise compassion. And so idiot compassion is what we do with our friends. They say, listen to what my boss, my partner, my mother, my sibling, my friend did. And we say, yeah, you know, you're right. They're wrong. I can't believe they did that. That's terrible. We just blindly support our friend. That's idiot compassion. Because if you listen to your friend over time, they probably have similar types of things that they've been telling you, maybe different cast of characters, maybe the same person. Um, but but you start to notice a pattern, right, that, that they might have a role in this too, even if it's how they respond to something. And so it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We don't say that to our friends. Mm-hmm. When you go to therapy, you get wise compassion, which is we hold up a mirror to you and we help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. And that's where you can start to examine the story a little bit more closely. We don't do that with idiot compassion. That's amazing. So do you advise and people sit back and say, look, like almost identify and put, okay, this person is an idiot compassion person. This person, you know, <laughs> like, um, and I actually mean that because knowing wh- who you should turn to and when at what time is going to be super important during these moments where you f- you're feeling vulnerable. 
Right. Well, I should say one more thing about idiot compassion, which is that, first of all, there are very problematic people in people's lives. So I'm not denying that. You know, it's like um, we always say before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. Right. (laughs) So because because, of course, you're going to be depressed if you're surrounded by assholes. OK, so so we get that. It's not that there aren't difficult people and problematic people in your life. It's that how do you respond to those people? First of all, why are you in relationship with that person? Do you need to be in relationship with that person instead of just complaining about that person every week? So that's a question. What are you doing there? And then the other question is, if you don't need to be in relationship with that person, um, you know, why aren't you leaving? And if you if it is someone that you want to be in relationship with for any number of reasons, um, what are you going to do to respond differently? What are you doing that maybe triggers this other person and then they start acting like an asshole toward you? So I'm not blaming the person. Mm. I'm saying notice how this is a dynamic. It's a dance that you do with someone else. Notice what your dance steps are. And maybe if you change your dance steps, the other person will be forced to change their dance steps as well, or they'll just fall flat on the dance floor. I love that analogy. That's so cool. Um, So let's talk about change because I've actually heard, which was super powerful, um, explain to me why people don't like to change. Um, I've actually heard you say that because of what change represents. And I'd never heard someone put it in this term. So it really hit me. If you can break that down, that would be great. The thing about change that's tricky is that people think that if you're going to make a positive change, it's going to be easy because it's positive. So I'm going to do this thing that's really good for me. I'm going to leave this relationship. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to do something that's healthy for me. I'm going to switch jobs, whatever it is. Um, and that that's going to be easy because I'm looking forward to it. The problem with change is that change involves loss. And what you lose is the familiar. You lose what you already know. And even if the familiar is unpleasant or even miserable, at least it's what you know. And when you have to make a change, you go into a place of uncertainty. Humans don't tend to do well with uncertainty. We get very afraid of what we don't know. So it's, it's really taking this leap of faith. So there's a, there's a chapter in maybe you should talk to someone called how humans change. And it shows that we actually go through a series of steps before we make the change. And then there's a a step after we make the change. So it starts with pre-contemplation, where you don't even know that you're thinking about making a change. It's completely unconscious to you. And then there's contemplation where you're starting to think about it, but you're not ready to do anything. And then there's preparation where you start to prepare to make the change. What am I going to need to do to make this change? And you're both logistically preparing, but also emotionally preparing. Then there's action where you make the change. And that is not the last step. That is really kind of the first step, because the next step, is the important step, and that's called maintenance. How do you maintain the change? And the thing about maintenance is that a lot of people think that if they slip up, and you will in maintenance, Mm -hmm. by the way, change is not linear. So you say, you know, you're going to call that boyfriend at three in the morning, even though you told yourself you weren't going to, Um, you know, you're going to eat the thing you said you weren't going to eat, you're going to not exercise, you're going to, you know, not do the thing that you told yourself you were going to do. Um, That's normal. That's to be expected because change is really hard. And so maintenance is about, you know, that it's built into that, that you are going to maybe, you know, slip back sometimes and you're going to be really kind to yourself. You're going to have a lot of self-compassion and you're just going to get back on track the next day. And that's to be expected. 
And people generally, what happens is they slip back and they say, oh, I failed. Forget it. I can't do this. <laughs> and then they don't make the change. This is why New Year's resolutions tend not to work, because that's what people do with New Year's resolutions. First of all, they don't go through all of the stages of change. And then when they get to maintenance, the minute they slip up, they say, well, that didn't work. So forget that. God, that breakdown was so powerful. As you were describing it, it really did seem like it's like the iceberg where it's like, before you even peak, you need to do all this work underneath. And people think, okay, tomorrow, based on exactly what you were saying about the New Year's resolutions is you wake up on January 1st and you go, now I'm going to change. You haven't done the entire foundation that when you fail, because it's going to be inevitable, anything you try that's new is going to lead to at some point failure. That's how you learn. But if you haven't prepared, then that failure then keeps you down. And I loved I loved what you say about basically change represents, can represent failure, rejection, betrayal, the unknown, and all of these words, even just saying them out loud, people fear. Well, I was even going to say when you said the word failure, I sort of cringed because I don't consider that failure. So I consider that success. It's this is part of the process, right. going through the process. So people need to reframe that because that's not failure at all. The fact that you're making the change and that you, you were very human and, and it was difficult sometimes, you're still on the path of success. Yeah, God. And it really just comes down to kind of where we started about perspective, because I really do think if you see it as a failure, it will make you feel a certain way. And the best thing that I just always go to is um, Edison, where it took him like 10,000 tries to do the light bulb. And someone said to him, oh, you know, how did you not um, get, you know, diminished in spirit when you had 10,000 failures? And he's like, it wasn't 10,000 failures. It was 10,000 lessons. And now right. every time I'm like, oh my God, you failed, Lisa. Oh my God, I can't believe you did that. I immediately notice that I say that and then flip those words in that language to go, oh, great. You've just learned something. What have you learned? And that empowers me instead of diminishes me. Yeah. And every time you do learn something like, well, what happened here that made me make that call or what happened here that made me do this or that? So you learn something about yourself. Was I feeling anxious? What was going on? And I think generally the reason that we can't change has a lot to do with um, anxiety. And the anxiety mm -hmm. is it's almost like when you go into a place of uncertainty, you're in a a foreign land that you've never been to. Mm -hmm. You don't know the customs. You don't know the language. You don't understand, you know, all that. You don't know where the landmarks are. All of the familiar things of home to you, even again, if home was terrible, it still was home. So all of the familiar landmarks aren't there and you have to navigate this new place and it's a healthier place. It's a better place, but it's still unfamiliar. So of course it's going to make you anxious. Yeah, so true. And as you're saying all this, you know, when people um, have, you know, pain, they normally, you know, move away from pain, move towards pleasure, um, which is why most of us love ice cream and hate going to the gym, right? It's like, well, freaking ice cream tastes lovely and the gym can sometimes be very painful. But I love, in fact, I want to um, quote you on this. It was so powerful. It was um, that there's a difference between pain and suffering. You're going to have to feel the pain. Everyone feels pain at times, but you don't have to suffer so much. You're not choosing the pain, but you're choosing the suffering. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So that came from a session with my own therapist where I was really having trouble with this breakup and I was Googling the ex 
And I was making up all these stories about what I saw online. Like, you know, he posted a picture of a salad in a restaurant. And I'm like, how can he even eat? How can he even <laughs> go to a restaurant? How can he even survive and breathe without me? I meant nothing to him, right? This really irrational way of thinking. But of course, you know, that's what happens when you're in grief. And that's what that's what happens when, you know, it's a loss. Um, and so, you know, my therapist said to me, listen, you're going to have to feel pain, but you're this Google stocking thing, you are creating your mm. own suffering. And so many times what we do is when we are in pain, we do something that is going to make us suffer instead of something that is going to help us sit with the pain and move through in, in a more healing kind of process. What's going on there? Why do we do that? Because uh, when I was younger, I definitely, if I was sad or if my boyfriend upset me, I would go and listen to the most saddest music I possibly could that would make me feel worse about myself. I would phone the the friends that are like, oh my God, what an asshole, you know? And it's, there's a certain weirdness of satisfaction in leaning into it. But what is going on there? Why do we do it? And then how do we, like you said, you said the steps, but how do we force ourselves to stop? Because it feels good to temporarily do that. Right, and what it is, is it's a distraction from feeling the pain. So even though you're making yourself feel more pain, it's a distraction. And so, you know, and we do this all the time with our feelings. We kind of, we try to numb them out. People kind of numb out their feelings, even with drama, you know, like, like listening to those songs or creating drama in your relationship. So you don't actually have to talk about what's going on between the two of you in a relationship. You know, those very volatile couples, I see them a lot in therapy. Um, the drama is there so they don't have to actually talk about what's not working. So they can, you know, really talk about the harder things. They don't want to do that. Um, often we will numb our feelings with too much food or too much wine. Um, you know, the mindless scrolling through the internet where you say to yourself, what just happened for the last hour or three, uh, you know, we've all been <laughs> yes. there. So, so the thing though, is that numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. And so when you try to numb your feelings, it means I am feeling so much right now that I am feeling flooded. I am feeling overwhelmed and we try to numb them out. But the problem with that is when you try to push down your feelings, they don't go away. In fact, they get bigger because they need air. And so they come out in, you know, insomnia and all these sort of maladaptive behaviors and self-sabotage and stuckness in relational difficulties in a short temperedness. You know, when something is people will tell you, you know, because they will see that something is not right with you. And that's because you're not actually letting yourself feel your feelings. Because when you feel your feelings, now you can deal with them. I always say that feelings are like a compass. They tell us what direction to go in. So if you're feeling sad, it tells you, well, wait, what's not working that's making me sad? Or you're feeling angry. Did someone just sort of cross a boundary that didn't feel good to me? Um, did I feel hurt? Did I feel misunderstood? Um, am I feeling unseen? Did, uh, you know, if you're feeling anxious, what is not, what is making me anxious? What is not working in my life? And then you can do something with it. It's like a roadmap. Even envy people, especially women, they feel like envy is so taboo. I feel like envy is a great point on the compass because I always say to people, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. It gives you a sense of your desire. It's like women have so much trouble acknowledging their desires you know, we can sometimes say I deserve, which is different from I desire. Yeah. I deserve is almost angry. Like, I'm going to tell you, I deserve this. I desire is from a place of that fire in the belly, that passion, right? 
And so with envy, people are like, oh, I don't want to feel envious of her. Well, no, no, no. That's great that you feel envious because it's telling you that you have a desire for something more in your life. Maybe you want what she has, but maybe you want your own version of that. And then what can you do to go about getting it? So I, I think all of our feelings are so useful. There, there are no bad feelings. They're, they're all extremely useful. When I heard you talk about envy and I was like, it's so powerful because especially in this day and age, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, always just loving yourself, you know, um, not engaging in the negative emotions or the negative feelings like envy and jealousy and things like that. But when, when I heard you say, no, 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 this can actually teach you something. I was like, oh my God, it's so powerful. Um, but how do you then keep sitting in it without feeling badly? So for instance, let's take jealousy, right? Jealousy yeah. can be tough. It can be detrimental to your own self-esteem, especially if you're talking about in a romantic relationship. So how would you even address that without it being detrimental to your self-esteem and staying on, on with the goal of, um, I, I'm using this to better my relationship? Yeah, there are no bad feelings. There are unfortunate ways that we deal with them. So there are healthy ways to deal with them and unhealthy ways to deal with them. So an unhealthy way would be, I'm feeling this envy and now I'm going to self-flagellate. I'm going to tell myself that I'm unworthy, that I'm never going to get what I want, that I don't deserve it. Um, you know, all of those, all of those thought processes that follow, or you can take the envy and say, wow, I could really do something like that. Or I could do my own version of that. Or wouldn't it be exciting if I sat down and made a list of all the things that I desire mm -hmm. and made some notes about, you know, who I can talk to or where I can get support for this or how I can get some guidance on this. And what are some things? Can I do some Internet research on on how I can get closer to getting something like that for me? Wow, I love that. Um because it's very difficult. We've been taught that feeling envy, feeling jealousy, like there's almost some shame that you bring on to yourself for feeling it in the first place. Right. And I think that what people do is they sort of bathe in the shame. You know, they sort of take a shame bath. They just sit there and wallow in the shame. And instead of instead of saying, wait a minute, why am I ashamed of the fact that I haven't gotten there yet? Mm -hmm. Why? Why should you be ashamed of that? And, and I think that I think that we, we judge ourselves so much in this comparative process, right? And I think the problem with comparison is that you have one of two outcomes. One outcome is you, and I, I'm talking sort of about social media in particular. Mm -hmm. When you see things on social media and you start to feel that comparison, which we all do, um, sometimes what you do is you say, "Ah, well, you know, I I'm better than that," right? So, mm -hmm. so that. that that's one one response is like, oh, well, you know, my this or that was more successful than that. So at least I'm OK. Right. Which is like this place of narcissism almost. It's not it's not a true sense of self-worth. Um, and then the other thing we do and the more common thing we do is, oh, my gosh, I'm not good enough. You know, like I I'm never going to have anything like that. I haven't you know, I don't I don't measure up. So you're either inferior or superior to. And so that's just not helpful with comparison. And I think with comparison, the person we need to compare ourselves to is ourselves. And so it's, what am I doing today that has led me to somewhere beyond where I was yesterday? 
And if you compare compare yourself to who you were yesterday or what you did yesterday to moving forward, that's the comparison you need to make. If you see yourself falling short there, that's a good signal for you that maybe I need to be more intentional. Maybe I need to, maybe I need support. Maybe I'm having trouble doing this on my own. I think so many people assume they're supposed to be able to know how to do things on their own when we really need other people to help us, to guide us, to bounce ideas off of, to, to buoy us up when we're feeling like, you know, we, we're, we're stuck. Um, we need other people. We need a team. I'm so glad you said that because that's really important, very powerful. Um, but as you were saying that, part of me was thinking, oh, I get a lot of women actually that reach out to me and say, Lisa, I used to be confident and, and now I'm not. And it's that fact that they used to be confident and now aren't that actually makes them feel worse about themselves. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about? That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Well, I think the question is what has changed and I think that if you were to ask them how they spend their time during the day, I don't think people are aware of, of just what they do from minute to minute, hour to hour during the day. And you can see that a lot of people do things 
that are really going to inspire those questions, um, you know, in a way where it becomes overload. Like they spend a lot of time on social media. I mean, a lot of time and they don't even realize it. So instead of doing something that would help them move forward in the way that they want to, they're they're just scrolling through and and feeding all of those questions that they're having about themselves. When you are very intentional about your day, when you wake up and I always I always recommend to people the night before. Think about when you finish your day, just before you kind of close out, you know, and maybe you're going to go do something else. And I really want people to have a separation between their work lives and some time off. And so at the end of the day, it should not be 9 p.m. It should be you know, a decent hour. Um, just, at, you know, make it a ritual of here's what I accomplished today, just so that you can really see it right there. Here's what I accomplished today. It could be something small, like I made sure that I ate lunch today because normally I've been, you know, not aware and I kind of skipped through that. Um, or I took a walk today or I accomplished this thing for this goal that I have um, professionally. Um, whatever it is, um, here's here's one thing that I accomplished today, or maybe you have more than one, but hopefully you have one. And um, and then here is what I want to accomplish tomorrow. And it should be very realistic. It shouldn't be a list of 10 things and then you just move them over every day to the next day and they never get accomplished and you feel terrible. It's like, here is one concrete thing that I really am excited to do and I know I need to do tomorrow. And then at the end of every day, you know what you've done, you know what you need to do and you wake up with intention. And so it gives you confidence. It gives you the sense of, I am a competent person, I am capable and I can, um, and, and also I think it gives you purpose and meaning. And if you have meaning and purpose and connection, that's where you're going to have the kind of life that you want to have. I love that because what you're talking about is transformation exists by making one tiny thing at a time. And I, um, I'm part of your book where you're talking about when you first broke up with your boyfriend and how much that just broke you, that for you, it was like, okay, it just has to be one thing after another. It's like, today I'm just going to get out of bed. Now I just need to put on my shoes. Then it's, I just need to feed my son. Like all these steps is how you end up going from one thing to another instead of being it so grand. Right. And I think most people don't realize that most big transformations come about from these tiny, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the way. And it's, it's one foot in front of the other. That's all it is. It's one step. And then you take another step and then you take another step. And I think people feel like they feel overwhelmed because they imagine that the way that you make big change is you make a big change. No, mm -hmm. it's tiny, tiny steps. And that's why I wrote, maybe you should talk to someone because I wanted people to see that what this process is like. I wanted to bring people behind the curtain into the therapy room with me so that they could watch how these changes come about. They can see the tiny steps, the heroic moments when you could have gone left, but you went right. And that was a big deal, right? Because for the first time, you were finally able to do that. You were able to break that pattern even once. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think you see that everybody in the book, myself included, we go through these incredible transformations and they're not unusual. It's not like I picked like, you know, the four best cases. Um, I could have picked anyone. Because that's what that's what it means to be human is you 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 kind of are floundering, um, you're scared, you, you're stuck. And then you make one little change. You make a little step. You take another step. You, you go backward five steps. You go forward one step. And eventually you get to where you want to be and you keep taking steps. 
I'm so glad you said that because I think that if we think of it as a linear path, that it's one foot in one step in front of another, I'm never going backwards, then kind of going back to what we were saying earlier about failure, it just discourages you. But knowing that that is going to be a one step forward, three steps back. Um, and you even said about habit, and I heard you say to replace a vicious cycle with a virtuous one. That really hit me. Um, talk to me a bit about that. And then how do we actually do that? Well, I think that goes back to the kinds of things that we do when we start to feel a feeling that is uncomfortable, and then we do something that is really unhealthy for us. Um, and so can you do something that is healthy for you to change the cycle? The vicious cycle is, I'm going to keep Google stalking my boyfriend, um, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, whatever the, the thing happens to be. Um, and I think that that when you do something healthy instead, like, okay, when I have the urge to Google stalk my boyfriend, I'm going to call a friend, I'm going to take a walk, I'm going to read a book, I'm going to do something that feels good, that isn't going to make me feel worse. And I want to say something, too, about these small steps. I have this podcast. It's called Dear Therapists. And this is it's an opportunity for people to hear what a therapy session actually sounds like. So people come on. They it's they get two therapists. It's me and my co-host, Guy Winch. And we um, you know, we 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 do a therapy session with somebody. And at the end of it, we give them actionable concrete advice. It's homework. They have one week to do it. And then they report back to us and let us know how it went. And the beauty of that is you can see that even after one session, people can make significant change because they're taking those steps and they just needed a witness and a guide because they have the answers. They know what they need to do, but they can't hear themselves. And so we reflect back and we help them see a new perspective. We help them rewrite their story. And then we give them these things that they actually have to do. Sometimes it's one thing. Sometimes it's three things. And they do it and they report back. And every single person has made a shift that they, for years, they couldn't make. Like they've gone to therapy before or they've talked to, you know, whatever. They, you know, they've, they've done all the kinds of things that they feel like they should have done. And, and I think part of it is people, when they write to us, they know what our show is. And so they're ready to make those changes in some right. way. But I, but I think that it's really hopeful for anyone listening that even after one session, you can take those steps and start to make these changes. Yeah, I love that so much. And um, it's so powerful, like you said, that people can be struggling with something for years. And usually I think people go to what's wrong with me, right? Like, why can't I get over this? What's wrong with me? And having just the tools, right? And a guide, like the right guide, you you know, talk about a compass. I love those analogies because I'm always like, what's my North Star and how the hell do I get there? So if my North Star is get over this relationship or get over my partner cheating or whatever that may be, I know I need the North Star and now I need the roadmap on how I'm going to get there, right? Otherwise, like, I'm never gonna I know where it is I just don't know the how the steps to take in order to achieve my destination well right and that that's why you know having that other perspective really helps I always mm -hmm. say that therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life from someone who's not already in your life and then not already in your life is so important because this person can see you so much more clearly than people who are too close and you're too close to yourself to see it and then the people close to you are too close to you to see it so it's kind of like if you're looking at a map and you're zoomed way in, you can't see the big picture, you can't see all the other streets, you can't see anything else other than that little tiny thing that you're zoomed in on. And a therapist is, is they're already zoomed out because they have this distance, right? 
So I, I think it's so useful to be able to go to talk to somebody who is not already in your life. Mm, yeah, so true. And you even said most of us kind of know that our past can keep us stuck, can hold us back, but so can our future. So talk to me about that because again, I'd never heard anyone talk about how our future holds us back. So in the example of the breakup, I think that when people go through and, and no matter what it is, say they, they have a miscarriage, say they are trying to get pregnant and they can't have a baby. Not only are they dealing with what's going on in the present, but they're dealing with the, the idea of the future that they had created around that. Oh, here's me as a mother or, oh, here's me married to this person. Or if it was a career thing, you know, like they have this idea of here's me with this. And then something collapses in the present. Well, it's not just the present that collapsed, it's the entire future that you built in your mind around what this was going to look like. And there's real grief and loss around that. So people say, well, I don't understand. This person died a long time ago. You know, why are they still dealing with this? Or this relationship ended or their marriage ended, you know, two years ago. Why are they still like this? Because their whole future has also been lost. It wasn't just the loss of that person. It wasn't just the loss of the day-to-day -day companionship. It wasn't just the loss of having someone who really knows you. It was the loss of, and here was the whole future as it was laid out. And now it's like the mother of all plot twists. Yeah. Now there's just blank in the future. You don't know what the future is. It's unwritten. <laughs> and again, going back to uncertainty and change, that can be incredibly scary not to know what that looks like. Now, of course, we don't actually know. Even when you think you know what your future looks like, you don't actually know. It's an illusion. But it's a comforting illusion right. that gets most of us through our days. But then when you really, the illusion is, you're stripped of that illusion, all of a sudden you start to get really scared. And you're, and you're grieving the loss of it because it was something you were really looking forward to. Hmm. Yeah. So what's the thing that then keeps us let's say it's a relationship so you had a vision of the person I was I'm with now he was going to be my future I'd envisioned he was going to be my husband I was going to have kids with them we were going to grow old together and is that why some people stay in relationships where they're not happy in uh, there are so many reasons people do that that's one of them is that is that they feel like they, they don't want to let go of this future that they have imagined with this person. They don't want to start over and say, okay, I have to erase all of that. And now I'm going to have to start over. I don't know when and if I'm going to find the person. I don't know what this is going to be like. I don't know what the future holds. Mm -hmm. And again, people would rather hold on sometimes, not for the long term. They eventually people start to realize this is not working. But in the moment, they get very scared and they say, I would rather stick with the familiar. I'd rather stick with the thing that I know, even if it's not really working. And, and people eventually get to a point generally where, you know, th then they've wasted years though. You know, they, they've wasted a really long time because of their fear. And that alters their future too, because their future might've looked different had they left the relationship at the time when they were aware that it was not working. Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask you. Cause you even said most people come to the conclusion eventually, it just takes them a long time. How do we prevent that, Laurie? Like the people will spend five, 10, 15 years with someone that they actually know they'll never end up with. Right, so there's this saying, we marry our unfinished business. And I could say we date our unfinished business too, mm -hmm. which is that we think that when we meet someone, that they are going, that the person, the person we're really attracted to, if we have not processed this unfinished business, so that's why I say unfinished business, um, we have this idea that we meet someone, we have this great, you know, attraction to them. And we think 
this person is going to be so different from that person in my childhood who maybe, you know, hurt me in some way, or I didn't get my needs met by this person in some way. And so now this person is going to be different. This new person is going to be different from the adults in my life who weren't able to meet my needs. Yet, if you have this unfinished business, what your unconscious does is your unconscious says, you look familiar, come closer, right? And we don't even know that's happening because the person we think is so different, but they're not at their core. Like if you had a parent who was withholding in some way or, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't really emotionally present, this partner might seem very emotionally present, but in fact, once you get to know them, there will be ways in which they aren't. Um, if you grew up with a parent who had an addiction, you will probably end up somehow being attracted to someone who has some kind of addiction. Maybe it's a different kind of addiction than your parent had, but something like that. It gets replicated. Um, and and I think that that we don't even realize that that's happening. And then you get into the relationship and you're like, wait a minute, this really does feel familiar. Why is this happening? I thought this person was so different. Why do I feel the way I felt as a little girl? in this relationship. Why is all this coming up again? I can't believe this is happening again. And then we started to think maybe it's me, right? Like maybe I'm unlovable. Well, no, it's not, it's not that you're unlovable, but it is you in the I sense that- I was gonna say it, I was gonna say you said that. You are gravitating toward those kinds of people. So in the book, there's this woman that I call Charlotte and she's this young woman in her twenties and she keeps hooking up with the wrong guys, including eventually one from the waiting room. And I know immediately that he's going to be bad news because she has radar for these men who are not going to be able to give her the kind of loving relationship that she wants. And, um, and, you know, when she starts dealing with the issues with her father and her mother, um, she starts being attracted to different kinds of guys. What happens is when you haven't processed all of this, you're only attracted to the people who are going to hurt you again. And so, and so what happens is she would go out with people who would be, you know, great partners, great potential partners for her. And she'd be like, yeah, he was a great guy, but I don't know. I just didn't feel like the chemistry with him. Well, you didn't feel the chemistry because in the, the reason that we're attracted to people who, who are similar to people who hurt us is because we have this idea. It's called repetition compulsion that this time I'm going to win this time. I'm going to get all of those things that I didn't get as a child from you who are similar, but because I'm an adult, I have more control. You actually don't because you can't control the other person. And so the idea, again, this is completely outside of our awareness that this time I'm going to go back, redo my childhood, and I'm going to get the thing that I want from this very withholding person, except you're not because you're with a very withholding person. (laughs) Right. Or I'm going to get what I want from this very unreliable person. But but you're not because this person is very unreliable. You can't change them. But we have this fantasy and it's the, the, the lack of power and control that we had as a kid. So as an adult, you think I'm going to change them. You know, there's those people who are like, yeah, this person has problems, but I can change them because they love me so much. Yeah. And I know that they really want to change. And I'm going to be a really good influence on them and a really healthy influence on them. I'm going to help them change. No, you won't. Meet a healthy person, be a healthy person, meet a healthy person. That's going to be a healthy relationship. God, yeah, it's so true. Like, so I don't know if I've been with my husband now. We've been together for over 20 years. We've been married for going on 19 years. And people keep saying, what's the secret? What's the secret? And every time I want to give like lots of tips, it all comes down to selection matters. Yes. 
Yes, I just I just did an interview with somebody who um, he's about to turn 90 and, and he was married. His wife just died and, and he was married for 60 years and over 60 years, actually. And and somebody said to him in the chat, um, you know, what is the secret to a happy marriage? Because they were completely in love with each other this whole time. And he said his wife's name was Marilyn. He said, marry someone like Marilyn. And I think what it's exactly what you're saying is it matters who you marry. And so many times people don't look for the qualities that are going to be important in a happy, lasting, loving relationship. And those are the character qualities. You know, so someone will say, I get this in therapy all the time. Someone will come in and they'll say, I'm so in love with him. And I don't know why he just doesn't call when he says he will, but I'm so in love with him. It's like, so you think that you're going to be happy in a lifetime of being with this person who is unreliable, who doesn't keep his word, who leaves you feeling anxious and abandoned all the time, right? So you love what? What's the, what do you love? Um, and again, that's the recapitulation of the of the childhood stuff. So I think when we say like, what is love? That's a really good question. What does it mean to love someone? And what does it mean to be loving to someone? Love as a verb. Is this person, you know, when he says he loves you or she says she loves you, what does that mean to that person? Because they're not acting in a loving way toward you. It is not loving to say, I am going to be home at this hour and then just call you two hours later and say, oh, sorry, I lost track of time on a regular basis. That is not acting in a respectful, loving way. So what does love mean? You say you love this person. Are you being loving toward them? Are they being loving toward you? God, okay, so how do you, if you know, if you look back in your past, depends on who's your past, what are those wounds, and are you replicating them in your adulthood? How do you prevent then from replicating that um, in into adulthood? Do you like make a list of all the things that were your wounds as a child? Like, how do you actually even start to do that? The biggest thing is that you have to give up the hope of having had a better childhood. So when you finally say to say to yourself, I'm going to grieve this loss, I am going to give up the hope of having had a better childhood. I can't, I can't redo my childhood. I can't redo it on all of these adults. I can't make somebody else make it better for me that my childhood was what it was. I am going to have to grieve that loss. And when you start to grieve that loss, you will notice that lots of healthy people come into your life you will start to find that you will have healthy relationships as an adult. Uh, yeah, God, it's so true. Um, and I actually recently thanked my father because my husband works all the time. He's a workhorse. He is just, I, I, from Monday to Friday, we barely see each other. It's the relationship we've decided on. It's a relationship the, um, the day-to-day we've agreed on. So we are all very much aligned. But a lot of people... Um, ask, you know, how do you handle him? You know, your husband working so much, don't you ever feel neglected? Like, God, if I was in your position, I couldn't do it. And I started to look back at my past because I was like, yeah, why doesn't it bother me that he works so much? And I looked back and I was like, my dad worked very hard. He would sometimes go on business trips for over a month, but I always felt loved. And when I was (laughs) with him, I always felt like the most special person in his life. And so with Tom, he does exactly the same thing where I feel utter joy with the time that I spend with him and we are connected. But I have almost been trained by my father to not necessarily seek the day-to-day affection. And so I can see how our past, if it's been a wound, can really negatively affect the person we choose. But also the flip side for me, where I love the relationship I have with my husband because of the way that I was when I was younger. 
Well, that's right. So if you had grown up with a parent who went away for long periods of time and you didn't feel loved, right. you would you would probably bring those feelings into this marriage. But because you had a very different experience, you love feels differently to you, right? Yes. So you know you can hold that and you can feel confident that he really loves me. And I think there's this phrase that I love, which is, does the person have you in mind? Right. So just because they aren't there, that you probably somehow communicate to each other, even when you're apart, that you have the other person in mind. And and I think that, it, you know, it's, it's like being held by the other person, being emotionally held. And I think your father somehow managed to do that for you, that you were emotionally held, that you knew that he didn't just forget about you when he was gone, right. that he had you in mind. And you were being emotionally held. And I imagine that that happens between you and Tom. Yeah. I, I really want to talk about the Goldilocks effects of, of how women show up on your couch with their partner. And, you know, very typically, I think it doesn't surprise anyone that most of us initially will point at the other person and say, well, they're not doing this. They're not doing that. But sometimes you can notice the Goldilocks effects. If you could uh, break that down for me, that would be great. So... So, well, it's interesting. I think when I see couples, a lot of times something like this will happen. And I and, and this will happen. I, and I'm going to talk about a heterosexual couple, but it, it happens in, in all couples. Um, and, and it has to do with these sort of cultural expectations and what we think relationships are supposed to be. And then all of these biases that we carry that we don't realize that we carry um, this little sort of like be careful what you wish for. And, and so often what I will see is some, a couple will come in and say that the woman says to her husband, you know, I, I just feel like we're not connected. I, I feel like I want to know more about your inner life. I want you to share with me. I feel like you're not, you're not really opening up to me. And so then he does in the therapy room, he opens up to her and let's say that he starts maybe crying a little or sheds a tear and then maybe he cries a lot. She will look at me like a deer in headlights. Like, oh my gosh, wait, 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 stop. You know, she won't necessarily say this. I just see this, she freezes up. It's like that, you know, fight, flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. She will freeze. Um, and she will just not know what to do with it because it's, and then when we talk about it, what she will articulate is something like this. I didn't feel safe when you weren't opening up to me, but I don't feel safe when you're that vulnerable with me either. Right? So it's like, it's like, what does he do with that? Right. And so I think that this can be applied to any situation where I think sometimes we don't know how to hold someone in their vulnerability. Mm. And, and that's really about whether it's a friendship, whether it's a family relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, we need to understand what does it mean to help someone to feel felt. And, and a lot of times what happens is we have this need, like I need you to get closer to me instead of saying like, how can we get closer to each other? What is it that, what is it that you need from me as a listener? Yeah, I, there's something about being seen and heard that is extremely powerful. And I even heard you say that like, that can be even more powerful sometimes than I love you. Yeah. In fact, I, I had this couple where, where one person said to the other, you know what three words would mean the most to me? And the other person said, I love you. And this first person said, no, I understand you. Mm. Those three words. I understand you. We have this deep human need to be understood. Mm. And, and that's why when we go back to listening, I think so many times people come to us and they want to talk to us about something, people close to us. 
And one thing that happens is we give them what we think they need in that moment based on what we might need in that moment. But we don't ask them like, you know, how can I help in this moment? How can I be here for you? Maybe they just want to vent because the thing just happened and they're not ready to hear anything else right now. Maybe they just want to be understood. Maybe they just want to hug. Maybe they do want to know how you think about it or what your thoughts are. Maybe they do want you to brainstorm solutions, but you don't know unless you ask them. So, so many times people get tripped up because they think I was so supportive of this person and they got mad at me and I don't understand why, or they felt like I wasn't listening, but I was totally listening. In fact, I even gave them three solutions. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, you didn't ask them what would what they're wanting in this moment. And by the way, just because someone comes to you with something doesn't mean that's the only conversation about it. So there's there's a conversation and maybe a week later or two days later or a month later, the conversation comes up again and maybe they need something different this time than they mm. needed that first time. So how do you, like going kind of going back to the, the Goldilocks effect, you think you know what you want and you think it's okay I want you to listen or I want you to speak up I want you to share and then in those moments it becomes this like oh god actually don't know what to do um how do you know then or is it just like a test and see because saying even saying to someone hey I really need you to listen so they may interpret every time I talk to you now all I want you to do is listen but sometimes Mm. you want someone to listen sometimes you want someone to give you advice sometimes you want the person to share sometimes you actually don't want the person to share sometimes you want your partner to cry sometimes them making them crying makes you extremely uncomfortable um so is it just you just got to deal with the good the bad the ugly everything that comes with it Um, no I think you have to communicate what you need and I think we don't know to do that we didn't grow up learning how to do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, so many times when I think about, you know, I'm a parent and I think about other parents, so many times when our kids come to us with something like, look what happened today, I gotta tell you what happened today, and they're really upset about something, our instinct is because we are uncomfortable with their discomfort. We can't handle their pain. We want to take away their pain when they're not really needing that. They're really wanting someone to sit with them in the feeling that they're having. Can you sit with me in my sadness? Can you sit with me in my anxiety? Can you sit with me in my anger so that I can make sense of this, right? Mm. Um, But what parents do is they say, well, you should do this tomorrow or you should try this or, oh my gosh, that's terrible and I'm going to call the school and, you know, whatever it is. Instead of just saying three words, which are, tell me more. If you come from a place of curiosity, so your kid is telling you something like this happened and this person didn't sit with me at lunch and, you know, this happened. Oh, wow. Tell me more. Well, I was so upset because blah, 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 you know, and and you go, hmm, that sounds really hard because it does. You're not you're not making that like you can actually get into the space. Can you put yourself in the other person's shoes and just be in their place and not in your space, which is, oh my God, how can I make my kid happy? Let's go get ice cream, right? Yeah. <laughs> the things that we do to try to distract them. Let's distract them from their feelings. Look over here, look over here, look over here, right? Yeah. Um, as opposed to let's just sit with this, like it's gonna be okay. And what you're doing is you're sending a signal to your child that it's going to be okay. We can sit in these feelings and you're not gonna drown in that. I love that. But what happens if it's, let's say your partner in this situation when you're on the couch and you're saying, hey, you know, share with me and they're sharing and then you are the deer in headlights. Um, do you force yourself to say, oh my God, tell me more? Like in those situations, how do you almost coach the the, the person in deer in headlights? 
Well, in this case, like when, you know, when, when it happens in the therapy office, I want to know why that person got so anxious. Mm. Like what made that person so anxious? So if you can ask yourself, why is this making me so anxious? This is a person that I love. They're telling me about a difficult experience. What is coming up for me about my own history and my own past that is making it hard for me to tolerate someone's discomfort? And it might be that you learned when you were growing up that we, discomfort is bad and we get rid of it right away. Um, you learn that when your parents experienced discomfort, it would escalate into something or you would get blamed for something or it would be turned around and it would suddenly be your fault. You know, what is going on for you? Why is it hard to hear something that's hard for somebody else? Are you projecting something from somebody else from the past onto the person who's sitting right in front of you? Boom. Laurie, I honestly could talk to you for so long. Your book is freaking amazing. Um, please tell everyone where they can find your book and where they can follow you and everything that you're up to. Sure. Yeah, they can find maybe you should talk to someone wherever they buy their books online in bookstores, um, wherever they prefer. Um, they can listen to my podcast. It's called Dear Therapists, and you can get that wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, they can read my Atlantic column. It's called Dear Therapist. And they can listen to my TED Talk at TED.com and they can find me at LoriGottlieb.com or on the various social platforms. Amazing. Guys, 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 I'm telling you, you got to go check out this woman. When I started reading her book, I do an audible. I couldn't take my AirPods out. I was absolutely obsessed in her story, in the way that she lays out the book. It's so freaking awesome. So literally go check her out, go check out the book. And if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And if you're not subscribed, guys, please do click that subscribe button down there. And until next time, be the hero of your own life. Peace out.